This interview was recorded on September 22nd, 2020. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Jason Turner. Based in Colorado, Jason is a software developer and C++ trainer, as well as a popular keynote speaker who has given talks around the world. He's the host of the C++ Weekly Show, which you can find at youtube.com slash C slash Jason Turner dash Lethicus. And he is the co-host of CppCast, which you can find at cppcast.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Lefticus and check out his website at EmptyCrate.com, and you can support him on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Lefticus. Jason is the author of the LeanPub book, C++ Best Practices, Best Practices, 45-ish simple rules with specific action items for better C++. In the book, Jason draws on his uh, 20 years of experience to help people overcome common mistakes that C++ developers often make at all levels of programming proficiency. In this interview, we're going to talk about Jason's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a content creator and author. So thank you, Jason, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thanks for having me on. I always like to talk to people, uh, to start these interviews by talking to people about their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in technology and programming specifically. <laughs> where I grew up might take up half of this podcast. So uh, okay. we'll skip that part. But okay. um, I became interested in programming. Uh, so my my dad bought a ti 994a we had this was you know early 80s um and i i i messed around on that a little bit and then my brother uh you know all of his friends had commodore 64s back then so he wanted to be able to swap games with his friends and such so he bought a commodore 64 and that having those two computers in the house i was extraordinarily fortunate so i got exposure to computers and programming pretty young um and i you know would my, my brother taught me the basics uh, it's interesting because he actually went to university for a computer science degree but lost interest but that interest that he kind of instilled in me stuck around for me yeah there's a there's a great talk that you you gave in 2016 at cppcon where you talk a little bit about commodore programming uh, and it was one i'm actually very curious so um how did you start programming? I've, I've interviewed people, you know, who've started programming at various different eras of, of you know, computing history. Um, what was your first experience like programming? Did you have like get like a magazine and type out some code into the computer or? The first experience that I can recall was um, and a simple example. And I actually recreated this on my other YouTube channel, which I haven't maintained in years. So I don't talk about it, uh, which is called the retro programmer. Um, where I took some graph paper and drew out some like animated figures and then type in the codes for it on the, on a TI 994A emulator and just make like a little jumping jack figure that um, is animated. And it was that, and it was my, my brother was always an artist and interested in these things. So this kind of thing is often going to come back to my brothers, few people who really influenced me in my life uh, when it comes to programming. So he was interested in the graphic side of things. And I, I remember asking him at one point, like, how do I do the little, you know, dancing, you know, the jumping jack man or whatever. And he got me started on that. And that's the first thing that I remember like programming on my own was putting in the codes for that. And that would have been like 1985. Uh, and I would have been about seven years old at the time. But then um, after that, it was, just I don't know like I, I would type in things for magazines yes uh, and I actually still have some of those magazines just right down here that were early 1980s um, programming magazines um, yeah I, it was interesting I was interested in it 
as basically as long as I can remember. Although I couldn't break out of this world of like basic programming, like basic, the programming language that is because all those computers came with it. And then DOS had GW basic and Q basic that it came with. And, uh, it was until, until high school where I started to like actually learn more about how computers work. And then I started experimenting with like Pascal and C a little bit. C++. And I can see from your LinkedIn profile that you studied computer science uh, in university. Um, the, I, one of the questions that often comes up on this podcast is, uh, it depends on what the person's background is, um, but, uh, the version of the question that comes up. But if you were starting out now to have a career in programming, would you advise yourself, knowing what you know, to take a four-year you know, proper computer science degree, or would you advise yourself to start elsewhere? I would still do, personally, I would still do a four-year degree, although I I just in the last, I don't know, six months or so realized if I was going to do that right now, I would focus specifically on photogrammetry because I find that just totally fascinating. That would be... Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Sure. That is where you can take a bunch of pictures of a particular scene and have uh, algorithmically automatically match up the points in the scene and do a 3D reconstruction of that scene. And it's the kind of thing like watching um, archaeology TV shows where people have been using that technology to reconstruct and preserve what a site looks like today. And then, you know, in 10 years, they can come back and do the same thing again and see what kind of erosion is happening or whatever. Uh, and, and, you know, some, some of the photogrammetry applications are super simple. You can just take a cell phone and take a few pictures and, and build a 3D model. It's used in real estate. It's used in all kinds of things now. That's really fascinating. I actually had never heard of that before, but that's that's just something I'm definitely going to look into and I'll maybe put a link or two to it in the transcription of this online. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Some of the people I talk to, you know, regret their time in university as wasted time. Others are like, it was the best time of my life. Um, some people, you know, didn't study computer science at all and they and they studied something else and they still think it, you know, it was, it was a good time. Other people uh, regret having spent time on a major that they didn't follow up with later on. Uh, so there's a wide range of, you know, as wide a range of experience as there is, as there is people. Um, and I'm curious uh, how you got into conference speaking. That's something that a lot of, Lean pub authors or budding lean pub authors sort of are trying to break into. How did you get into that? It was all very accidental. Uh, to, so, so you know, the full disclosure. Like, what was it? It was maybe ten years ago. I was asked to speak at um, to to give a presentation for a client that I've been working with. I'd become um, self-employed contractor at this point in my career. And I hated that. And I went back to the manager and I said, just so you know, I am never presenting again for your organization. And there's only a room of like 10 people, right? It was just my own personal nerves and whatever. Uh, but then over the course of having been self-employed for about five years, I, I had a lull in my contracts and I had a bunch of free time available. And I thought, well, I have no idea what I'm gonna do with this free time. So I'm just going to put everything out there that I possibly can and see what sticks. And so I actually applied to speak at some conferences and um, 
I had two talks accepted to the first conference ever that I would be speaking at. And that was at C++ Now in Aspen, which is in Colorado here also in 2015, I think that was. Um, and I had like a shockingly great time. Like I just had so much fun and it was a particularly good venue and a particularly good conference with really welcoming people. And it's the kind of that particular conference is the kind of conference where if, if I don't know the answer as the speaker, someone in the audience does and they'll give the answer and it's okay. Right. Like that's like, it's a good welcoming environment for that. And then, so I just had so much fun and decided, well, I guess I'm going to keep doing this. So for people who are curious how to get started, you just have to start up, up putting in applications to speak at conferences. I mean, that's, that's the short answer, but it was all just, kind of this weird slippery slope. And then I became a podcast co-host and thought, well, as long as I'm doing this, I may as well start a YouTube channel too. I don't know. And <laughs> so now I've spoken at conferences and, and or user groups and many countries. I won't, I won't bore you by counting them at the moment. Um, and, and probably an average of six conference talks a year or something like that for the last five years. Although none for 2020, I uh, have not done a single one this year. Yeah, I've got, I've got one or two questions to ask you related to that in just a moment. But um, before we go on, the last thing I guess about, about your background is, um, so you made this choice to go independent um, mm -hmm. some time ago. Uh, what, what led you to, to do that? And how, how did you, you know, feel about it when you, when you made that decision? Well, I had always like wanted to be independent. Even in high school, I thought I'm going to have my own business. I'm not going to work for someone else. And um, my cousin and I, which I said, there's a couple of people influenced me programming wise. My, my cousin and I had talked about starting our own business in high school and that kind of thing. We're in the same year. We both went to Virginia Tech together as well. And... <sighs> I just, you know, there, there wasn't a good opportunity. Like I didn't have like a business that was going to make money. Right. So I, I just took jobs. And this is, again, is this one of these things where, you know, how did it happen? Well, uh, new manager came in at my last job and we didn't get along very well. So uh, it ended up that I found myself saying, well, I need to find another job, basically. And at approximately the same time, uh, a client that I still work with now, 10 years, 11 years later, actually sent me an email, cold email, and said, hey, we like this open source project that you have. And we're wondering if you can do work like that for us. And I said, sure. I mean, that first contract was tiny. It wasn't nearly what I was used to making, but that just kind of happened from there. Yeah, that's really interesting that it was an, an open source project that, that got, you, got you found. I've um, been extraordinarily fortunate for the last 11 years. Almost every single line of code that I've been paid to produce has been open source from various clients, various parts of the world. That's fascinating. And actually, I guess one last question about your background. How did you get into C++? How did I get into C++? I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. It was, the year it was the year before I started college, and uh, I, I wanted to try C++. But why did I want to try C++? I don't remember. Uh, and But then I didn't really, you know, I kept trying it through university uh, a few times, 
And then, well, then it comes down to who knows how this happened. I ended up unemployed and I was unemployed for seven months. I spent those seven months working on my own project in C++ just to, to, to get more skills and knowledge. And it was the work on that open source project that actually led to my first C++ programming job. That's a really, really great story. I can see there are a lot, a lot of details that there's just a behind lot. there. Um, but that, but thanks for thanks for being so forthcoming about all that. Um, uh, so um, before we move on to talk a little bit actually about about conferences, um, uh, I wanted to ask you uh, a little bit about how the uh, pandemic has affected you. Um, okay. I, I, a few months ago, I started kind of date stamping these with an ominous, this interview was recorded on such and such a date, <laughs> which I hadn't been doing before, but it matters now um, and uh, has for months. Uh, so how, how have things affected you? I think, I think you're in the sort of Denver area. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, have things, how have things been in Denver and how have things been for you? So here specifically, uh, like our schools have gone back in session. Students are, as far as I know, wearing their masks, that kind of thing. I don't have kids. This doesn't affect me directly. But as far as I know, we're not, we're not, we don't seem to be having the same issue that a lot of the other parts of the world have. There, as soon as everyone goes back to school, the school is closed and everyone's sent back home again, you know, kind of thing. Um, so, From a pandemic perspective, I would say we're doing pretty well. Most of our stores and restaurants are open with 50% capacity. Depending on where you are in the state, like 100% of people are wearing masks, people are being being courteous, and uh, it's... I mean, we have a statewide mandate that you have to, but you know, it's it's working out. Uh, This is my perspective on things. Um, From a work perspective, Uh, that old client that I mentioned that I've had for like the last 11 years had a bunch of extra work available this year. And so even though I haven't been doing conferences and a training, I have had plenty of programming work to do. So it's basically all worked out as from, you know, the only difference being I, I, you know, effectively never leave my home compared to traveling and training all the time, which I was doing previously. And did you start uh, adopting sort of, pandemic habits like uh you know ordering groceries online or something like that that you hadn't been doing before we did not the grocery stores right around us at the beginning of the pandemic were like if you ordered something online it would take it like a week to get to you and the order would be wrong like they i don't know why but they couldn't work it out Um, my wife and i are very low risk group so instead my wife just started asking our friends do you need me to go grocery shopping for you because she could get it done better and faster than ordering online was was working out. So there's a couple of friends that she did the grocery shopping for. And as such, she just continued doing our grocery shopping. And I guess um, I also need to ask you about fires because um, <laughs> it's, it's 2020. Uh, what were the fires like in, uh, in Denver? Uh, we still have an unhealthy warning today. It's so the, the, the mountains are still on fire. Um, it's, it's messed up my running schedule basically, but the last couple of mornings, the weather has been great. The skies have been clear and blue and there haven't been any, any smoke in the morning. So I've been going on long, long runs with the dog. Uh, otherwise, I mean, for, for me personally, not a, a huge effect, just this, you know, when it smells like campfire all the time in your house, that's weird. Yeah, it's uh, I'm I'm quite a distance away from you, a little bit north of Washington State in Victoria, right. British Columbia, uh, and um, we had we had a week of just smoke 
in from the California, air. yeah. Uh, from California and from Washington State, I think as well. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I kind of like the smell of campfire. I wish it had smelled something like that instead of just like poison. Um, <laughs> right. But but actually, I mean, again, given like even though we're this far away, like I had a very similar experience a couple days ago. Things just cleared up, and now it's just blue skies and mountains in the distance. So uh, it's it's nice when things get back to being not just normal, but actually good and, and pleasant. Um, uh, speaking of, of normals, there's a little bit of a new normal happening. So I, um, on your, on one of the recent episodes of the CPP cast, you were interviewing some people from, I think from Microsoft yes. about CPP con 2020 yes. and that's gone, gone totally online. And I was wondering if you talk, wondering if you could talk a little bit about how they, they handled it. Cause this is a pretty big conference as I gather and something a lot of people look forward to every year. Yeah. It's well, I mean, you know, on the scale of programming conferences, it's kind of shockingly small in a way. Right. Cause oh. I, I mean, so, some of these conferences, like, I mean, you know, AWS, whatever they get like, I don't know, stupid numbers, 20,000 people or whatever their conferences. Right. So at CVPCon is the biggest in the C++ world. I think there might be, I think C++ Russia might sometimes be bigger, but it's uh, about 1300 people or something like that in a normal year. My understanding is that we did get, they got 900 some odd registrations for CVPCon 2020 and and used a system called Remo. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, no, I hadn't heard of it until I listened to the episode, but if you could explain a little bit about how that works, it sounds really fascinating. It's, it's kind of, I mean, it gives you like a virtual conference floor. So you've got a bunch of tables and tables with different numbers of seats at them, like two, four, six, eight, something like that. And you can just go and click on a table. And if you choose to turn on your camera, turn on your, your microphone and have a view of the other people at the table, kind of like uh, described in some ways as like an impromptu Zoom session or something like that. And, you know, when you're bored, you can leave that table and go to another table. It kind of replicated the experience of being in an actual conference, but you know, sometimes in an actual conference, you're just walking down the hallway to go to the bathroom or whatever, right? And you overhear a topic and you're like, wait a minute. And you go and join that conversation real quick. There, that's impossible in this kind of virtual environment, right? You're not going to accidentally hear something that catches your interest. You have to end up at a table with people. And there was, uh, you know, kind of normal, I think, uh, Zoom again behavior where not everyone was turning their cameras and webcams on. So when you did find a table where there were people talking, it became like this magnet where everyone went to it and, you know, you, then you had a lively conversation. And, and then if you were in a, an actual conference room where a talk was going to happen, you could still carry on these, conf uh, these talks at tables. And then as soon as the conference talk was getting ready to start, it would automatically shut down the tables and then do full screen with the, the presenter. The presenters I talked to said that it was kind of like talking to a brick wall for an hour and they found it very exhausting, which is one reason why uh, I have not uh, spoken at any conferences in, in 2020. Um, my, my personality as a speaker, and if anyone listens to this who knows my, my style, uh, I, jump, I jump off the stage, I wander up and down the aisles, I want the audience like actively talking back to me. If they aren't, I do things to make them do that. That's kind of impossible with the way that the, the online conference was done. There's a live chat and some of the speakers had a separate computer open and they could read the live chat. But, you know, not, not quite the same 
thing. Other people said in some ways it was better though, because in that live chat, if the speaker brought up a topic that someone didn't know the answer to, or, you know, didn't know what that topic was about, then someone else in the chat room could answer for them, you know? So, uh, I found yeah. it interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, everybody's having their own, their own experience of, of how this is affecting the, you know, the way they, they operate professionally. Um, one of the things I've been curious about is, um, how, virtuality affects networking. Mm -hmm. um, uh, for example, uh, we, we just had a couple of um, summer students, co-op students from the local computer science department um, whose, whose first job was remote. Um, they, they've never known anything else. And, wow. And, yeah. And, and they, I mean, they took to it fantastically. Um, but I do wonder how the professional networking is going to sort itself out because so much of that is, is a matter of in-person serendipity. I yeah. mean, I've, I've, I've interviewed people who, you know, their, their, their whole professional lives were changed by meeting someone in line, you know, for coffee at a conference. Exactly. I, I, I read a comment from someone uh, recently said to them, the main advantage to doing things like speaking or going to conferences is new contracts like you're saying, change your life. And they said, you know, usually by the end of the first day, they've got some new contract work lined up when they're at a conference and they're like, this is, and, and they're in that person's opinion, that's never going to happen in a, in a virtual conference. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I didn't line up any new contracts. I also wasn't actively looking for anything new at this one. I don't, uh, I don't know. I have no, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll see how people adapt. I mean, you know, people do, people, you know, are going to still have interests and, and uh, you know, there still will be chance involved. Right. Um, you know, we, back when we were a bootstrap consultancy, our biggest client ever discovered us by pirating my co-founder Peter's book, you know, uh, <laughs> getting in touch with them saying, wow, you really know your stuff. We need, we need you. Um, so those things can happen in various, I know, various ways. Um, so just moving on to the next part of the interview, uh, where we talk about your book, um, okay. C++ Best Practices. Uh, what was the inspiration for writing this book? Uh, uh, I did a set of tweets. I think it was at the beginning of the year. I said one best practice per retweet. And by the time I had typed in like 45, I was like, okay, I'm done here. Like I can't, I can't give away all of my material because I'm also a trainer. Right. But then I had a few people that said, this is great. This is gold. When's the book version coming out? My coworkers need to read this, right? So I put that in the back of my mind and very slowly just collected those things and, and organized them over the next few months until I decided, okay, I'm going to actually announce that, uh, that I'm going to do this. And a shout out, since you mentioned my Patreon earlier, um, I do have a book supporter tier on my Patreon because people asked me to. They're like, oh, you're working on a book? give us another tier. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I gave them another tier and I've got a list of credits in the back of the book for people who have been supporting me at that level. And they got, um, they get their own uh, coupon codes for the book as well. And uh, yeah, I was just wondering if you could talk, I mean, you know, without, without giving the whole, the whole thing away, <laughs> Sure. if you could talk a little bit about a couple of the, the best practices that you, that you talk about in the book. One, one that um, struck me was don't copy and paste. Code. Oh, goodness gracious. Yes. 
Um, if you don't mind, I'm actually going to bring up my own outline of the book. Please, <laughs> please do, please do. <laughs> okay. I've got your table of contents here. Uh, thanks. That's, that's helpful, actually. <laughs> and it's funny because I was just working on it before we, we got into this call, too, because I'm, I'm getting very close to being able to say it's 100% done and get it released. So, yes, don't copy. These, I don't want to say that they're in order of like most important to least important because I don't want it to come across like the things at the end of the list don't matter. But there are definitely things that I want people to like think about. And a lot of what I talk about, you said don't copy and paste code. I'll get to that in just a second. A lot of what I talk about is around tooling. Um, C++ is a complicated language. It's been around for a long time. It has a long history. Part of that means if you go and Google for how to do something in C++, you are going to find nine out of 10 terrible answers. So with our modern tooling, we can uh, get the compiler and our static analysis and those kinds of tools to tell us when you're doing dumb things, basically. So a lot of what I talk about is around tooling, or at the very least, if it's a rule, it's how to get the tool to actually help you enforce that rule. So when it comes to, to don't copy and paste code, I've been doing a lot of refactoring for clients lately. And one of the main things that I've noticed is if I'm doing some relatively simple refactoring and I change a line of code and I search for the next use case, and I change the line of code and then I search for the next U case and I change the line of code and I go, those three lines seemed awfully familiar. And then I search again and the next thing looks like the first thing again. And the next thing looks like the second thing. And I'm like, wait a minute. There's, and you, and you start to see, you, you don't see it when you're doing it, right? It's so easy to be like, oh, well, I just need to print out another thing. I'm just going to copy and paste this real quick. But what you've just done is you've taken a block of code, duplicated it, triplicated it. And then you say, oh, well, the next thing that I need to output looks an awful lot like the last thing that I needed to output. So, you know, copy that whole block that you just made three replications of already. Next thing you know, you've got hundreds of lines of code that should have been like one function call 10 times. And in this, I mean, it's not specific to C++, but it's just a general best practice thing. What makes C++ relatively unique is with our generic programming mechanisms and template capabilities, we have that many more tools available to us to make it easier to not replicate code. We can say, oh, well, I just need to take any type of thing and print it out to standard out here. Okay, well, it's super easy to write a template function that can take anything and write it out as far as typed languages go. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. That's all. Um, it, it's it's one, one of the really interesting things about about your book is, and you talk you actually talk explicitly about best practices at the beginning, mm-hmm. is that so much, I mean, so much of of like you can you can know the le- you can learn the lesson, but having the discipline to do it seems to be to be the real one of the real tricks for and and um, uh, I'm reminded of a recent podcast interview I listened to with someone who I think was a psychologist who'd become a journalist who then became a kind of like champion poker player of um, course and and she wrote about and she she learned from one of the best 
one of the most, one of the best poker players in the world. And she said the biggest thing she learned was how to control herself when, when her impulses were trying to make her deviate from what she knew in her sort of super ego brain, you know, was the, was the right thing to do. When you're training people, do you have any techniques or tactics that you give them for like what to do when you're, when you're sitting there and you're tempted to shortcut? Uh, well, going back to what I started with, uh, a lot of that is getting tools in place that catch you when you're, t- when you've, you've, cause it's not just you, right? Okay. Let's just say you are a perfect programmer. Is the guy or girl or woman in the cubicle next to you a perfect programmer, right? Cause your code's always perfect, <laughs> but the person next to you, of course. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's the, you know, it's a little bit snarky, but you know, having tools in place, having a culture of saying, we're not going to move forward unless our tools agree and say that we're doing good things uh, is, is definitely part of it. One of the things that I have in the book is just, it's a short chapter called slow down. Like, uh, this, this comes down to copy and pasting code. Like if you find yourself and particularly again, C++ is a multi-paradigm programming language. It can do object oriented, functional, procedural. We can do compile time. We can do, um, generic programming. We can do pretty much anything in this language. If you find yourself saying, wow, the solution that I'm currently working on is really complicated. Stop go for a walk, take a glass of water, because there's almost certainly a simpler solution in there. So that's the main thing that, you know, if you want to say like, how do you stop yourself? That's what I would say is just slow down, you know, but it is easy. It is easy to just copy, paste, copy, paste, do whatever, take the shortcuts and not really think about what you're doing. So I guess it's the best I've got to say about it. Uh, and you, you mentioned static analysis, um, and you also have a section about that in your book. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, or maybe maybe imagine someone's listening who isn't a programmer. What What is static analysis, and how does that help people write the code that runs everything we use nowadays? Okay. So I'll, uh, if you don't mind, talk about static and versus dynamic or runtime analysis to oh, give sure. the contrast there. So static analysis is analysis that is performed on your program without actually executing the program. Now that's a little, sorry, that's a a little bit of a hand wavy way of saying this or a little bit nebulous, ill-defined way because uh, static analysis can do things that are complicated like tracing the control flow of your program, but So it kind of looks like it's running out, but it's not. So what you do is it analyzes your source code, basically. Static analysis analyzes your source code and then can give you back results and say, well, this variable could have been const, but you didn't make it const. You know, I suggest that you make this const. And modern static analysis tools are amazing because they can even give you a quick fix option. Just, you know, you click a button or run an automated script and it just does those things for you. So static analysis analyzes your source code and tells you where you're breaking best practices or perhaps invoking undefined behavior or getting some sort of something else that you don't want in your program. Runtime analysis uh, and um, like the sanitizers I mentioned in my book are tools that actually execute your program, but in a special instrumented way in some way. So if your program says, well, I 
have this array of five elements and tries to access the sixth element, if you're lucky, your program will crash. If you're not lucky, it'll access data that's not there and cause who knows what to happen. You start getting bad results from your program. You start getting uh, client data that has been corrupted. That's bad. Good, good is a crash because at least nothing got corrupted in the process. Um, runtime analyzers, like the sanitizers, like I said, they, they hook and instrument your code in such a way that if you try to make that access to the sixth element that's not there, it does crash. And then it gives you a, a debug statement that says, you tried to access the sixth element of an array of five things that was allocated on line five, and you tried to access it on line 10. And, and these things, these tools are getting absolutely amazing as well, like almost magical. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for that explanation. That was really clear um, uh, about something that might be a little bit arcane to people who aren't sort of in the programming world. Um, there's a lot more to the book than the uh, bits that we've just discussed. Uh, yes. I should mention I should mention to people that um, it's it's about 100 pages long right now. Uh, yes. the, the sections are pretty short, um, so you can just kind of dive in and you can you know scan scan the table of contents and learn learn a lot of really really useful things relatively quickly. And it's also very clearly written as well. I should say so. Uh, yeah, yeah, if you're looking for to learn uh, this is a good book to, to learn from i would just want to comment that the, the terseness is 100 intentional like i could write more words but one of the things that i've learned as a contractor in the last 10 years is if my client asks me a question and i give them a detailed explanation they don't read it so i don't give you a, <laughs> all the details in this book because i want to you to something that you can quickly digest and will read yeah, no, thanks very much for sharing that. Actually, that offers a perfect segue into the last part of the interview where we talk about your experience and your approach to being a content creator. Okay. Um, I know you've, um, you've actually made a couple of videos for O'Reilly uh, in that's the past. Right. What was that? that? That's something that a lot of LeanPub authors considered doing. What was your experience like with that? Did, they, did O'Reilly approach you? Did you approach them? Someone recommended me. I don't know how, I don't remember the details. And so one of the O'Reilly representatives, one of their, um, I forget what the job title is, but basically the people who are out there trying to acquire more content for the publisher, they're kind of like agents or something. They came to me and asked if I was interested in this. And I asked other people I knew had worked with them and had good experience. So I went ahead and did it. Um, it was, it was interesting. It was one of my first experiences in this content creation world. But for me personally, uh, creating content in someone else's terms was not really ultimately what I decided I wanted to do. So all of the slides in the video have to be to their template and with their fonts and how they want things laid out. And I, I have my own style, my own template, my own slides. I've been speaking now for several years regularly, right? So I have been contacted again about doing other videos for other people for various reasons. And I, you know, well, if you're going to make me fit 
my style into your template, then I'm just not terribly interested now. But it was a good way to get started. It was a good way to help get my name out there. People learned about me partially from those videos that I did with O'Reilly. And, uh, you know, it's, there are things that continue to make money. I still get a check every month, even though I did them. Was it five years ago they were published? I think that's right. And do you remember if they gave you any training or anything like that? That's something that I think a lot of people are curious about. You know, do I have to learn it all myself? Or if I get involved with a company, will they, will they help me out? They definitely helped me out. They gave me, uh, like I said, the templates and they, they shipped me the equipment that I needed to record at the time. I didn't have any kind of decent microphone here and they had all of their editors. So when it was all done, it was all very professionally edited. Like I, the way I did it is I would speak and then I would type out some of the examples when I was doing some live coding demonstrations. They edited that together so smoothly so that like my speaking was like done over the typing. Um, in my YouTube videos, I don't go through the effort to do that. It's far too much work, right? Uh, so, and then they did, you know, give me guidelines. And if I had questions, they'd answer the questions. I did a couple of video call conferences with them to make sure that we we're all on the same page and that kind of thing. They definitely guided me through the process. And was it around that time that you got into podcasting as well? I had started the podcast the year before that. And I started my YouTube channel a few months after those videos were released. Okay. Okay. So you've been doing it for a while now. Yes. I've got my YouTube channel has 238 videos up now and it's C plus plus weekly. That's 238 weeks going. I have not skipped a week. One, one year I released a video on July 5th instead of releasing it on Monday, July 4th or something like that. But since then, every single week. And the podcast is on episode 260, something like that. It's been going for a year longer, but we've, we have skipped a few weeks with the podcast. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. I, I'm, I confess to not being that disciplined uh, in my podcast <laughs> scheduling, but uh, there is a little bit of secret, secret sauce to the podcasting world, which is regularity. Yes. Um, algorithms are like that, that help people discover podcasts are often, you know, uh, weighted in favor of podcasts that publish regularly, particularly my understanding is actually like specifically weekly. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but publishing on the same day or days of the week, every week, if you can, is yeah. actually one of the most important things for discoverability. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's, you know, for, for pretty obvious reasons, right? They want to know that there's something fresh. They want to know that it's active people. I mean, I, I know for the podcast I listen to, I'm super disappointed if, <laughs> if, you know, Monday comes and there's no new, you know, mindscape from Sean Carroll or whatever, you know, like it, it, it really does make a difference. So if anyone out there is doing podcasts or interested in doing it, uh, try and be like Jason <laughs> and do 200 weeks in a row. Cause it'll serve you really well. Um, uh, so my last uh, couple of questions are about uh, your book and why you chose uh, lean pub to publish it. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, why did you choose lean pub to publish your book? I was, uh, well, do, do you mind if I make a comment on the publishing regularly? Uh, oh, no, well? no, please, please go ahead. I admit, I don't honestly know how long of a podcast you aim for. So I don't know if we've been going a long time or not here, but um, so I was, I started a C++ blog in 2003, I think it was. 
and I did not keep going with it. So at the time it was moderately popular. Like I ended up being linked to from a Wikipedia article, that kind of thing, because there were simply, it was like no one else blogging about C++, not no one else. Herb Sutter was, who's the chair of the C++ standards committee today. So, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, we didn't think about doing that so much then. If I had kept going with that blog, I mean, the number of articles and the amount of content and links back to my website that I would have today would just be astronomical, right? Or, you know, 17 years or something like that. I didn't keep going with that. So, you said release regularly, weekly, if you can. I just want to also just encourage anyone who's listening to this, if you're an aspiring content creator, I don't care what you're doing. Just try to keep going with it. Set a minimal schedule for yourself once a month or something so that you just keep going with it. If you have any interest in all in becoming independent, building some kind of brand for yourself or something like that, because that kind of regularity and body of content is absolutely invaluable. If you have 300 articles on your webpage, someone knows who you are, right? I mean, unless they're all spam articles, but that's not what we're talking about. So anyhow, sorry. Why did I choose LeanPub? Uh, do you want to go? Sorry. Well, actually, actually, no, I was just going to say um, that's actually a really important point about, about spam articles, um, which is because there are a lot of people who kind of, you know, might read a book like tips and tricks for getting your content out there. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll, I'm going to speak with maybe more confidence than I, than I should about this, <laughs> but like, um, it doesn't, first of all, like, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good, right? You don't, everything doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to right. be aiming for a Nobel prize in whatever you're writing about. But if there's a lack of kind of authenticity to, to what you're doing, mm-hmm. people will pick up on that. Um, people will pick up on that. And so, you know, some people, that's just their personality. They just, they want to like, they want to have a playbook and they want to follow it. And if that's who you are, don't try and be, don't try and be somebody else. Uh, But I would definitely recommend if you're an aspiring content creator, trying to pull little tricks to hook people in is, is again, it's an available option, but it will mark you as a certain kind of person or a person undertaking a project in a certain kind of way. And (laughs) You know, it, I, I feel that it will probably limit you in the end, even if it gets you some short-term success. Yes. Every couple of months, I'll allow myself to do a clickbaity style uh, topic on my YouTube channel. And it's disappointing how many extra views and how much more ad dollars it brings in. But I know full well that if I did that regularly, I would lose my regulars. But... You know, my regulars know what to expect from me at this point. If they see one every couple of months, they're going to laugh about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, no, that's a really excellent point. It's like you can, you, it's, it's the norm that you want to, you be, think very carefully about the norm that you want to set, but don't be afraid to deviate it from it every once in a while. And, and certainly don't be afraid to have, to have fun yeah. uh, and, and try and don't, and try and get some attention, you know, that way, that way too. Um, yeah. So I guess, you know, the, the last question yeah, is uh, that um, I have for you about this is, yeah. Why did you choose LeanPub as the platform for the book? I think I'm aware of it because I know I, believe three or four other C++ authors who have published on LeanPub and have published more than one book on it. Some of them, you know, make a majority of their income or I I assume from, from uh, publishing. And I 
So I was aware of it and I thought, well, if these people who I personally know trust the platform, I didn't even ask them. I just said, well, they, they've been using it and have released more than one book here. So I may as well give it a shot. Part of it was that the markdown, the fact that you use markdown actually, because uh, Everything that I do is in Markdown, right? I, you know, GitHub is in Markdown. I actually, I've built my own slide system for conference presentations. That's all in Markdown. I love writing in Markdown. And the fact that I could just write in Markdown and organize the topics in a way that made sense to me as a programmer and the way that I like to edit was a huge sell for me. Okay. Yeah. No, thanks very much for sharing that. I was wondering if, if that, that wasn't your sort of way in because <laughs> we've actually had like quite a few C++ books. I think um, uh, Nico Yosudis, who's been on the mm -hmm. podcast, Jonathan Bacara, who's been on the podcast, mm -hmm. but a number of others to the point where I actually, we, we have weekly and monthly like sort of email newsletter sales at someone tweeted a response like C++ much or something like that. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the books we selected that week, which are selected kind of arbitrarily. There were just like 10 C++ books in there or, or courses or, or whatever it was. You seem uh, to have gotten momentum in the C++ community here. I guess I don't so. know who started it though, of those authors. I don't know who was the first, I mean. I think it might be Nico, um, okay. but I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, I can actually look into that a little bit and see and maybe add a, add a link to, you know, the first C++ book on LeanPub or something like that to the, to the transcription. Uh, like the C++ timeline. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, uh, actually, the, the, the last question I always like to ask on the podcast, and we save it for the very end because it's so, you know, sort of obscure, but if there was one uh, feature we could build for you as an author or one bug or annoyance we could fix for you, uh, what would you ask us to do? I was not prepared for that question. Sorry, I probably should have asked in advance. <laughs> I did want to activate an index. I know that you're working on it. So I won't, I won't push on that. Um, yeah, we are eventually going to have a way to, to produce indexes for books writing in, in Markua, which is our, our version of Markdown, but it's not, it's not, it, it's spec'd out, but it's not implemented yet. Right. I don't know. I mean, some of the things, um, oh, well, I, I don't have a good answer for you, but I will tell you one of the main hiccups that I, oh, actually, yes, I have a couple of comments now that I think about it. Uh, enter, uh, enter internal linking, which works fine if you get the syntax right, but I kept getting the syntax wrong for how to specify an anchor. I just ended up just using the terse syntax or whatever of just the, the hash sign and the, and the anchor name. But when I've got an internal link that doesn't go anywhere or a link that's not used because I somehow got a type name, I got a name wrong or I got some of the syntax wrong. Like as far as I know, there's no diagnostic output at all. There's no way to say, oh, warning, by the way, you put 10 links in here that don't go anywhere. That would have saved me a ton of time. That, that would be awesome if I could get some sort of diagnostic dump from the last build. Yeah, thanks, thanks very much for sharing that. Um, error reporting has been one of our sort of 
biggest weak spots. Okay. Um, we do have, we took it away. So we, part of the complication is that we actually do have an, an error dump that you can get. Um, you have to turn it on. It's opt-in. You have to turn it on. And I'll, oh, really? I'll, 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 I'll try and find the feature for you after the podcast, but <laughs> okay. at the interview, but it was basically the reason I don't know where it is, is because we took it away. Uh, and then we put it, and then we put it back as an option. And the the reason was that you know, lean pub authors are mostly programmers, but they're not all programmers. Uh. And giving people a bunch of like obscure error reports, who are like, I just want to write my romance novel, um, <laughs> like, and like, they're, they're, it's not. It's not, a, it's not a matter of competence or professionalism or anything like that. It's just like they just that's that's the last thing they want. Right. Um, is a bunch of that and and often our error reporting was kind of yeah it was like a big it was like a big dump error like, reporting is hard yeah good errors yeah. are hard yes. yeah yeah and then and we we've it's hard for us too and so and so but yeah i'll, I'll point i'll point you to the feature and i'll put a link to a, a help center article or something explaining how to get there uh in the in the transcription of this but yeah that's that's something that's kind of dogged us over the years because there's some people who are like i can't believe you don't give me a big dump of data about my book build. And then there are other people who are like, what's wrong with you? Why are you, why are you showering me with, with all of this useless information? So we're, we're, well, we're, eventually, hopefully we will find the right balance. Um, uh, but, but, but for now, turning it off by default and letting people turn it on if they want it seems to be a pretty good, good solution. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll point you to that. And yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. Um, uh, and I, should, I shouldn't have put you on the spot like that. I actually do that all the time. And I should actually start asking people that question in advance saying, by the way. Um, well, what you're going to get is what bothered us last. Right. Not what necessarily bothered us most. Right. Very good point. Very good point. Uh, well, uh, thank you very much, Jason, for taking the time out of your day uh, to, to do the, the episode. And thanks very much for using LeanPub and being a LeanPub author. Thank you. Thanks very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.